0: Hey everybody, this is Josh. I'm the producer of the United We Pray podcast. While our podcast is on break for the summer, we wanted to still get you guys some resources, so we're going to be posting some summer sermons. Grace and peace. amen. I want to remind us of the stated goal of our time together this morning. You can see it on your handout. The invitation to this event said, we desire to play a small role in bringing greater awareness to the historical roots and present forms of racism in our city. The goal is not merely greater intellectual knowledge, but greater compassion. So that we are better positioned to empathize and strategize toward the end of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. Friends, this is why we have gathered together this morning to talk about race and racism. And it's there that I want to pause and ask, what do I mean by race? By racism? What do you mean by those terms? Most importantly, what does God mean by them? Brothers and sisters, I ask these questions because we're not ultimately here for the opinions of men, but of God. I ask because if we want to adorn doctrine, we have to know doctrine. Earlier we talked about sorrow and joy, and our joy will increase if we actually understand what's being said. So, we have two talks today. In the second talk, we'll get into the nitty gritty of structural racism in Washington, D.C. But so that we can understand that talk, so that we can grow in compassion, so that we can empathize and strategize, we need to know what the Bible says about race and why it matters. And what do you know? That is the title of this first talk. What does the Bible say about race? and why it matters. In this talk, I'm going, to get, I'm going to answer three questions. One, what does the Bible say about race? Two, what does the Bible say about racism? Three, why does it matter? You can see our, our outline on your handout. Uh, your handout is mad dense. Uh, I did not uh, make it so you could have space for notes so much as I made it so you could have a carry-out version of this talk, okay? So consider this a homiletic happy meal, okay? And my prayer, brothers and sisters, for this talk is that we come to better know what we're talking about. And more importantly, what God is talking about. So that we might be zealous for the good works in light of today's topic. So today's talks uh, will be topical addresses. We're going to look at a number of passages to keep you from flipping all over the Bible like a sword drill. I've listed the texts in your handouts. Uh, My intent isn't to do an exposition of these texts, but rather to meditate on them and note observations that inform our faith and practice. So here we go. Question number one, what does the Bible say about race? And what I want you to see is that the Bible speaks about race in three ways. Speaks about race biologically, speaks about race ethnically, and it speaks about race spiritually. And you'll see continuity between all these ideas, and yet I think each distinct lens gives us a biblical framework to build as we think about race biblically. And yet I give you this framework With caution. Because one scholar noted that while it would seem helpful to offer clear definitions of race and racism at the outset of a study, that temptation needs to be resisted. It is unhelpful for either the speaker or the listener to start out with a set of rigidly defined concepts. And he said that because the concept of race has changed so much over time. Just walk down 4th Street and ask a hundred different people, what is race? I bet if you do that, you may get a hundred different answers, and those different answers will be different than how people would have defined race a hundred years ago, much less a thousand years ago. This is why I like in having the race conversation to building and babble. You know the story. Genesis 11, instead of, uh, instead of spreading over the earth to, su- to subdue it for God's glory, as we'll see mankind was created to do, man comes together to try and build something for their own glory. And what does God do? This is an actual question. Someone raise their hand. We want some participation. What does God do in response? Yes, amen. He confuses their language. And having tried to build something from IKEA recently, let me testify. (laughs) It is really hard to build something, whether it's a tower, a couch, or unity in a congregation. It's really hard to build and maintain something when you don't have a common language, when you can't communicate, when communication is confused. Uh, Friends, have you ever felt confused in the race conversation? So often the race conversation feels like we're getting on the metro, trying to talk to one another, but we're all boarding at different stations. Let me just give you a sample of these different stations when it came to defining what it meant to be African American in this country, okay? So we're talking about structural racism today. Here Here is a definition that was codified. In the legal system of different states. One scholar noted how some states' laws claim that a person with one African American grandparent was African American. Other states claim that any person with one drop of African ancestry was African American. Still, other states use more ambiguous language for defining who was an African American, like appreciable mixture or ascertainable amounts of African ancestry. These kinds of classifications continued to be upheld as recently as the mid-1980s. In 1986, the Louisiana courts declared a woman with one black great-great-great-great-great-grandparent as African-American, even though she appeared white and had lived as a white woman her entire life. And leaving Louisiana, since we're here to talk about Washington, D.C., last month, July, marked the 100th year anniversary of a D.C. race war that happened in July of 1919. And during that, when black women and men fought against violent whites, some said that self-defense gave yet another meaning to what it meant to be a Negro. Brothers and sisters, one thing that I want us to see today is that the Bible's definitions... And ideas of race, while they have some elasticity to them, they're so much more stable than the world's definitions. The Bible's definitions are such a better ground to stand on, to build on. And so we want to build our faith, our understanding and practice, not primarily from Twitter or the culture or statistics, but from the Bible up. And to be clear, I'm not saying things like Twitter or stats or are only bad. I'll give you stats later today. But the longer I've been a part of this conversation, the more I've seen that if you want to, you can have your set of stats that will allow you to remain in your predetermined camp. Stats are disputable. God's word isn't. Stats change and fade. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we want to come to it for a proper definition of race and racism. It is essential to adopt as much. After all, one writer put it this way. He said, the adoption of of a definition of racism uh, that is too narrow will result in a failure to recognize manifestations of racism for what they are because they do not correspond precisely with the strict criteria imposed by the definition. In other words, if we only define racism as burning crosses, we won't be able to see structural racism because we'll only be looking for people with white hoods. The writer continues, on the other hand, a definition that is too broad and too vague makes it possible to describe virtually every form of discrimination as racism. Both phenomena, defining racism too broadly and too narrowly, occur frequently and are harmful for intellectual and moral clarity. In other words, brothers and sisters, we have to be able to think about race carefully. Someone once asked me, how should I talk about race? And my answer, I was thinking about all these profound things, and I was like, I just said one word, carefully. Too often, evangelical Christians lack thinking with nuance. We only have two speeds. You'll you'll see a uh, two-speed thinking on the back of your handout in the little glossary. Too often, uh, for American evangelicals, something is either of one ultimate importance or two, no importance. This is why we often pit things against each other, like evangelism or injustice. James, we were talking about this before. Reform theology, and justice, uh, God's sovereignty and evangelism. But we need more than two speeds. If we're going to climb this Mount Everest of structural racism, we need more than a single speed bike. Uh, if, you own, if your car only drives at 100 miles an hour... Or zero miles an hour You're either going to do damage Or get nowhere Keep this idea of two speed thinking in mind For our next talk as I'll come back to it But it's enough for, say, uh, it's enough for now to say We want our understanding to grow out of the best soil And there is none better than God's word So I want to take you back Before the 1980s in Louisiana, before D.C. in 1919, before Babel, brothers and sisters, I want to begin where it all began, in the beginning, where God makes our first parents, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1. Uh, Here we find the creation account. Look at verse 26 and following on the front of your handout. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is the foundation of of our identity and our primary job description as people. Uh, We are to image God, to show what God is like. That all people are made in God's image means all people are worthy of dignity, of love, of respect. There's so much we could say about the image of God. And yet what I want you to see is simple. God made two people in his image. And it's from these two image bearers that all other image bearers come. This is the exact point the Apostle Paul makes in Acts 17. You'll see it on your handout. In Acts 17, 26, Paul says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, the truth that began in the Old Testament is confirmed in the New. Biologically speaking, there is one race, the human race. And I think most people, certainly not uh, the, uh, not certainly not all people as the El Paso shooter shows, but most get this truth and will at least give this truth lip service uh, to this idea that this truth is right and good. Folks may even say with, pray, with pride as this conversation arises, God has made one race, the human race, as if to say we should never talk about other races. And to that, I say, true, but look at Acts 7. There we see race spoken of in a different way, which is our second subpoint. Now, the Bible talk, talking about race ethnically. In Acts seven we find another speech, this one given by the deacon and martyr Stephen. And reviewing the history of the Israelites, Stephen said this says this uh, starting in verse seventeen. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race. The Hebrews. And force our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now, brothers and sisters, this is where we have to treat the Bible like something hot we're pulling out of the oven. Uh, We have to be careful. Because we don't simply read our definition of race into the Bible like, oh, it says the same word, race. When the Bible talks about race, it talks about people groups, families, even nations, The word for race here appears 20 times in the New Testament, and most of those times it's in reference to people groups. Talking about people groups in this way differs from what we mean by race, uh, in that our idea of race, the world's idea of race, is based on superficial features, namely skin color. But that concept of race, while it may have had its roots as early as the fifth century, some argue, wasn't explicitly developed until the 17th and 18th centuries. The Bible's concept of race here is closer to what we think of as ethnicity. And the root for that word is all over the scripture. Most famously, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, he means go to all peoples, all ethnicities. Look at your handout in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. So ethnicity certainly includes the ideas of biology, specifically ancestry. But but it also adds this layer of culture. It refers to the way people identify with each other based on commonalities such as language, history, religion, and food, and so on. And yet what I want you to see is simple. Again, even in the scripture. There is a basic notion of racial groups, of families that naturally lead a group to think we're us and they are them. So in short, brothers and sisters, in this one biological race, there are many races. And yet the Bible speaks about race even in a third way. It speaks about race spiritually. And this is the most important way. But remember, two-speed thinking, that doesn't mean the other ways we think of race are unimportant. So far we've said there is, in some sense, many races, ethnically speaking, one race, biologically speaking, and now we'll see there are two races, spiritually speaking. So the next time someone asks you, how many races are there? You get to have some fun with them. (laughs) And this idea of two races is as old as Eden. It, it was there that God said there would be a spiritual race, a seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman would clash with the seed of the devil. Look at Genesis 3.15. This is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Let's just say Proto-Evangelion together on three. One, two, three. okay, Okay, yeah, yes. Yeah. That was actually very good. Okay. In the midst of his judgment, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God offers hope. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this in many ways is the outline for the rest of your Bible. Uh, This is the, the outline of the whole drama of scripture. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. Cain versus Abel pharaoh who wears a crown with a snake on it against god's people the pharisees against jesus jesus told them in john eight forty four 44 they were of their father the devil and talk about bad ancestry and yet jesus this second adam comes and crushes the serpent's head by dying on the cross in the place of sinners He tears down the wall of hostility that Ephesians 2 spoke of between Jew and Gentile, two races that hated each other, that he might create one new man. I love this. Look back at that verse in Acts 17. In bold, we see God made all men from one man. And yet God has also made another race of people, one new man, Ephesians 2 tells us. Look at verse 14 and following of Ephesians 2. Should be on your handout. It says, "For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the fl- in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace, this new man is made up of those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus." We now have not the devil, but God as our father. And members of this new man come from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Isn't that what God promised Abraham, that through him, all the families, all the races of the earth would be blessed? So look back at Acts 7 on your handout. Stephen was preaching about this promise, which God granted to Abraham. The peoples of the earth would be blessed, and so these people would make up God's chosen people. The redeemed of different races would make up a chosen race. Look at how Peter talks about it on the back of your handout. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Brothers and sisters, this is what it's all about knowing God, being one of his people. Look back at that verse in Acts 17. Do you see, God made from one man every nation of mankind, hop to verse 27, that they should seek God. That we were created to know God. To not simply be a part of the human race, but the spiritual race, the seed of the woman. And on the last day, every member of this race will be gathered around God's throne, Revelation 5 and 7 tells us. So, friends, if one picture of heaven is diversity united around God's throne, then it makes sense why racism looks so much like hell. And so we're clear, so we're not in Babel, let's make sure we understand what the Bible says about racism. Question number two, what does the Bible say about racism? Ligon Duncan provided a helpful definition that gathers so much of the Bible's teaching. Here's what he said. It's in your notes. Because racism is a loaded term, and some suspect an unbiblical agenda when it is invoked, let us say precisely what we mean by racism, biblically and theologically defined. I love that. Biblical precision. Racism is the denial of the image of God and its implications to someone of another ethnicity. Racism in the church is a contradiction of the visible unity of all believers in Christ. So do you see why we had to do all that biblical building so we can actually understand this definition? Racism inside and outside the church is a contradiction of Jesus' command to love our neighbor as ourselves. And of God's creation of all people in his image. So theologically, racism entails a denial of the biblical doctrines of creation, man, the communion of saints, and is disobedience to the moral law. We will not mince words. Racism is not only sin, serious sin, it is heresy of the deepest dyes. Friends, racism is ethnic partiality. So when James said to Christians, you can see this on your handout, my brother, show no partiality. He also meant this kind of partiality. This partiality can appear overtly. Many of us uh, might have an understanding of what that looks like, and it can appear covertly. Individually and systemically. As we're priming our minds to understand systemic racism in our city, I want you to think of the story of Esther. Earlier we talked about race, ethnically speaking, in Acts 7. But this idea of race is in the Old Testament too, especially in Esther. There an official named Haman worked within the system of government. He codifies his racism against the Jews into the law. Chapter 3 of Esther makes this clear. Read with me on your handout. And when Haman saw that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So many observations we can make about the connection between racism and pride here. How racists racist, think they're God, anyway? Uh, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Uh, racists don't simply desire; don't simply despise people. They despise people groups. So as they made, uh, no, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Fast forward to verse nine, where Haman says to the king, "If it please the king, let it be decreed." There's a legal structure that the Jews be destroyed. Beloved, whether it's Haman, Pharaoh, Herod trying to wipe out the Jews, this story is, t- is told time and time again as the seed of the serpent tries to wipe out the seed of the woman. And that attempt to annihilate them has ethnic, racial manifestations. Now, again, these racial manifestations, they don't depend on skin color the first century would the the first century world, as described in the New Testament or the Old Testament, for that matter, did not experience racism in the same way it is understood today in the United States. People in that time did not have a history of European colonial expansion to the Americas that nearly decimated an indigenous population. nor did they transport and enslave millions of people from the continent of Africa. Downstairs, you guys were talking about the anniversary of sixteen nineteen. And yet, I'm not sure how much that Haman's oppression wasn't about skin color actually matters. I understand that people would be concerned to lose the most important story, the story of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, if we only make this story about race as ethnicity. But we also shouldn't make the mistake of making the Bible's plain, literal, historical meaning about race spiritually only. We always, when reading the scriptures, let its principles and applications inform our lives. Just because the Bible doesn't explicitly or exactly say anything about one specific topic, it doesn't mean we can't have biblical thoughts about it. So Haman's story isn't about skin color, but it is about one group oppressing another. It is about ethnic partiality and so much of what Ligon's definition mentioned. And that Haman embodies so much of Ligan's definition makes sense to our 21st century minds when we remember that racism is a phenomena that can assume many ap- apparently different shapes and forms while preserving a remarkable element of continuity which is undeniable once it is traced over the centuries. Racism has been with us a long time and in various cultures, adopting various shapes. It continues to be with us and will continue to be with us. If we recognize only one variety that belongs to a restricted period, we may fail to recognize it as it emerges in an alternate guise. So brothers and sisters, one, prin- one principle that will be crucial for our next talk is that racism Mutates over time. And so does our perception of it. And if our perception is off, we will walk by opportunities to love our neighbors who have been affected by racism. And that is just one reason why this matters. Which leads to our last question. Why does this matter? Question number three Why does the Bible's teaching on race and racism matter? I'm going to answer with 10 reasons, but never fear, they are all tweet-sized. Here we go. The Bible's teaching on race and racism matters for our Father's glory and our joy. So often, when the race conversation comes up, it is framed as a negative conversation. And I think that is a tragedy. Beloved, God has made us in different ways. Diversity was his idea. And I understand because of the different ways people have historically abused that truth and added to it, we may want to ignore or minimize those ways. But we should give God praise and glory for his good creation, for the kaleidoscope of skin colors. It's not like God spilled the paint in heaven. To downplay them, these colors, or ignore relationships and communities in which we experience this diversity is to rob ourselves of joy. The greatest commandment is to love God with all our mind, soul, and strength, and his goodness in race, the human race, our own race, ethnically speaking, and especially the spiritual race. God's goodness to us in these things is one reason we can love him more we should enjoy and marvel at our neighbor because they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Which means the Bible's teaching on race and racism also matter for our neighbor's dignity and ours too. So apart from understanding the image of God and the unity we have in the human race, we, will, we, we cannot have a, la- a solid foundation on which to rest our understanding of the dignity of people. And that matters because the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor. We should note that in Genesis 1, which we read earlier, Adam and Eve are ethnically generic. They're not Hebrews. They're not Egyptians. They're presented as non-ethnic, non-national. Not because ethnicity is bad or because nations are. The nations of the earth were God's idea. No, Adam and Eve are presented this way because they are the mother and father of all ethnicities and all nations. Meaning, there is no ethnicity on earth that reflects God's image better or more than any other. So it's not just the dignity of all human beings that scripture traces to creation, it's also the equality of all human beings. Which leads to our next reason the Bible's teaching on race and racism also matter. It matters for our coming together. So Christians, we understand all human beings have sinned. But we also rejoice that Christ died for sinners. Amen? Amen. Reconciliation between people is the fruit of the gospel. When we talked about this, God making one new man. Now, we're not saying that fruit is the gospel, and indeed Christ has already made us one. But if we're going to live in that reality, if we're going to come together, we have to understand the work and result of the gospel. And there can be no understanding without truth. There can be no reconciliation without a reckoning of truth and God's word. And what, about, and what it says about race Is truth Friends, ethnicity and race Are among the primary organizing principles Of human history, of human society We ought to know about them The effects of them We'll come to that soon But first it should be said uh, That the Bible's teaching on race and res- racism Doesn't only matter for our coming together But our staying together What God says about race and racism doesn't just matter for our reconciliation, but maintaining unity in that reconciliation. Since God made one new man out of Jew and Gentile, given these two groups' history, it's no wonder why God commanded them to maintain that unity. This unity takes work. And what will make that work easier is if we have a common understanding, a common language Understanding what God's word says about race and racism gives us a shared understanding, or at least a better one, had we not tried. At that last day when every tribe, tongue, and nation is gathered around God's throne, we will see Babel completely reversed and undone. And we get a chance to live that out, that great undoing now by maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we can better maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace when we speak the same language about race and racism. Brothers and sisters, we're called to bear one another's burdens. But if we ignore the Bible's teaching on race and racism, we will make that bearing work much harder. If we ignore the Bible's teaching on race and racism, we make ourselves susceptible not to lifting burdens, but to making them heavier. We make ourselves susceptible to a cold, callous, and wholly critical disposition. If that's how we are toward one another on this topic, our witness to the watching world will be damaged. Which is the next reason the Bible's teaching on race and racism matter. Jesus said... That the world would know we are his followers by our love for one another. Jesus prayed for the church's unity and said it testifies to his coming. Jesus commanded us to take the gospel to all nations. Friends, if we care about evangelism, we ought to care about racism. That's the like, cheapest way I can get to it. Like If someone's like, I don't care about this race stuff. You care about evangelism? You should care about racism. If we're going to pursue faithfulness, we should not only concern ourselves with the proclamation of the gospel, but with also teaching people to obey everything Christ has commanded. Which means people will be instructed to love others and especially their brothers and sisters in a way that is attractive and compelling to the world. This is why it is a tragedy that eleven o'clock is still one of the most segregated hours on on Sunday morning. This is why, after your last meeting, last time, when a bunch of white people walked out of this room, people in this community are like, what's going on over there? (laughs) Thinking about gospel proclamation, we ought to see that racism matters for Christian preaching and teaching. So, Nathan, James, pastors in the room, note, Stephen wasn't afraid to talk about race. And to point people to how God was sovereign above it. Though he's not mentioned in the book, God's sovereignty over racial oppression is what makes Esther one of Scripture's most hopeful stories. I've heard it said that a biblical understanding of race is one of the greatest deficiencies in discipleship today. And I think the fault for that is to be laid at pastor's feet. Pastors, if we don't teach on this, we are implicitly teaching people that Christ's lordship doesn't extend to this area of their lives and understanding. But it does. It does. If we don't teach on this, we lead our people to think scripture isn't sufficient. But it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we don't give our people the tool of God's word, the workmen and workwomen in our churches will have no, no choice but to use the culture's tools. And on this topic, those tools seem really attractive. Because the culture right now at least has a general and good agreement that racism is bad. But the foundation under that conviction is faulty. It's not rooted in God's word. That's why the culture will use the same foundation to endorse interracial marriage that they will to endorse same-sex marriage. Because whenever a minority seems oppressed, the world only has one speed. What's more, if we don't teach on what the Bible says about race and racism, we make ourselves susceptible to heresies. It may sound crazy now, but the idea that there are multiple human races and that Christ only died for one of them, I'll let you guess which one, that idea did exist. That idea was preached from pulpits. We ought to take heed lest we fall to racial heresy in our congregations. And brothers and sisters, the soundness of our teaching directly corresponds to the hope of our people. If we don't teach from scripture on race and racism, we mystify the sin. You ever realize how the worst thing you can be called today in today's society is a racist? That's because people don't have the category to deal with being called such or to see it in their own hearts. This is why so many people are simply happy with not being racist. But we shouldn't have a negative goal, not being a racist. We should positively be advocates for those in our sphere against whom racism is being committed. We're going to talk about that in our next talk. But for now, we need to rejoice in the fact that the scandal of the gospel isn't that we commit or can be or that we're complicit with the sin of racism. The scandal of the gospel is that Christ forgives repentant racists. Do you see? Racism is not the unforgivable sin. And right now it's treated that way. And to not teach on race and racism is to hold back that great hope from people. And that's only one side of the hope hope that we hold back. That's hope for those who inflict oppression, but uh, what about the hope of those under oppression? If you're looking for an advocate against racism to get to know, I want to encourage you to get to know Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer. A Christian woman whose trust in the Lord was as sturdy as her voice was beautiful. Hamer would be known as the lady who knew how to sing. Belting traditional spirituals as she helped bring about voting rights. Hammer was traveling in Mississippi when she was kicked out of a transportation facility that the Interstate Commerce Commission legally mandated to be integrated. In other words, she had every right to be there as a black woman. And yet the people who kicked her out were white officers. And they took her to jail and began to interrogate her. And yet, tragically, they were more interested in beating her than they were in her answers to their questions. And yet Mrs. Hamer, committed to nonviolence, resolved to love those men, all white men and women. A simple gospel woman with profound impact, she'd later say, ain't no such thing as I can hate anybody and hope to see God's face. Mrs. Hamer would soon meet the wives of one of the jailers, a white woman, who gave Mrs. Hamer some water. Mrs. Hamer thanked her and remarked that she must be Christian people. The jailer's wife picked up on Mrs. Hamer's remark, telling her that she really tried to do her best and live right and to please God. Mrs. Hamer assumed the role of counselor and told the jailer's wife to get out her Bible and read... Acts 17.26 Acts 17.26 And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. This is the verse we talked about earlier about the human race. So the point in short, brothers and sisters, for this first talk, God has spoken about these matters, so they should matter to us. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be asking a satanic question when it comes to your word in this topic. Did God really say... We want our minds and our lives to be shaped by your word. Help us to see that as we think about systemic racism in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.